Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rabbit. Thank you so much for joining me for this particular podcast. Uh, somebody once said, May, uh, May 1000 flowers bloom, and we're definitely seeing some of that in the way in which independents are emerging uh, as contenders across a range of electorates in the coming federal election. And that's there are various reasons for that, uh, one of which is people appear to be dissatisfied with major political parties. And not only that, they appear to be dissatisfied according to the ANU research done back in 2019 on the 2019 federal election about the propensity for political parties to talk about themselves and not about the people they represent, whether it be leadership challenges or other, other issues that are internal to them. Now, joining me today is someone who has probably been seen in different circumstances over the past 12 months uh, in the media, Joe Dyer. Uh, she's standing as a candidate in the seat of Boothby in South Australia. She's also got a very neat book that's come out called Burning Down the House, Reconstructing Modern Politics. We're going to explore a range of issues with her, both the book, her candidacy, and some of the other issues that she's been involved in. Joe, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Now, before we dive into uh, the matters of substance, um, there are probably people who will pick this up who've, before things evolved with you appearing on the Four Corners and the ABC, and or popping up as a candidate, they wouldn't have known you from a bar of soap. What would what's your elevator pitch? What's Joe Dyer's elevator pitch? What would your career look like on the back of an envelope? Well, I've uh, forged a career in the arts. You know, um, when I first started working in the arts, I did it really. Um, I thought it was like a halfway house between real life and university life. Like it was. One of those things, I was offered a job casually working at the State Theatre Company of South Australia, which I embraced. It was a pretty cool way to be earning one's uh, drinking money when one was at, one was at university. Um, and then I'd been offered a job in the law, um, actually through a debating contact, covering a maternity leave cover at the Transport Accident Commission down in Melbourne. Um, and I thought, my God, if I'm going to go and do that, be a lawyer in insurance law, then I'll just wait till after the Adelaide Festival. And I was working at the Fringe, having a great time. And that's when I was offered a full-time job at the State Theatre Company. Um, and really, it I didn't look back from there. Look, I've had a few detours and a few flirtations. I was at the Human Rights Commission for a while. I came back and had another flirtation with electoral politics when I was in my late 20s. Um, but most of my working life has been in the arts and it's been uh, producing the works of Bangara Dance Theatre, of Sydney Theatre Company, of independent film. Um, and in latterly, I've moved into the world of literature and curating um, literature festivals and most notably here in Adelaide, the much-loved, world-renowned Adelaide Writers' Week. So it's a very different background, I guess, from a lot of people who are putting their hand up for politics, but that is... That's the nature of this electoral cycle, it seems. Um, coming back, just stepping back one second, you mentioned you you, you went to the Human Rights Commission. Uh, what was your role there for, for the period you sort of had that flirtation? 
Well, that was um, I after I was working at State Theatre Company, um, I then moved up to Sydney and I was working in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commission uh, or unit, working with Commissioner, um, Social Justice Commissioner Mick Dodson. Um, and look, I really had great ambitions uh, for that job when I got it. I mean, it was a fairly junior job working in the unit and I was going to have to kind of claw my way up. But I did very much imagine that I was going to be a you know, human rights activist on the coalface, a warrior for justice. Um, and I think it was in the first hour of being there and being shown around and you're shown your computer and all those sorts of things. Um, and the person who was showing me around pointed towards this little icon on the PC and said, look, that's a really important icon to know, important application. That's the way you calculate your flexi time. And kind of in that moment, I realised that perhaps the Human Rights Commission wasn't so much a coal-faced activist hotbed, but was a part of the Commonwealth Public Service. And so it came to pass, it was very bureaucratic. I realised I was indeed a bureaucrat, a public servant and not a warrior. And it just wasn't the kind of environment in which I was going to flourish. I went over for a while on sabbatical to the um, the legal department of the Refugee Review Tribunal, and that was still an independent um, authority, and just to see if it was actually like the kind of cotton wool bureaucratic nature of the Human Rights Commission was something that was peculiar to the Human Rights Commission, or it was something that was actually public service wide, and discovered that yes, indeed, that that sort of environment wasn't gonna be one in which I flourished. So that flirtation with the, the commission and indeed the tribunal only lasted a year. And that's when I got my job working at Bangara Dance Theatre and realised that in fact, just because you had a strong interest in social justice and social progress, it didn't mean you had to be so directly and literally involved in those sorts of areas, whether it was electoral politics or it was within the public service, you could actually um, drive an agenda in all sorts of different ways. And actually that the arts was a really great vehicle for doing just that. And somewhere like Bangara working with a brilliant artist like Stephen Page and a cultural leader like Stephen Page, um, actually, it was a you could it was a convergence of my interest in First Nations justice and and their stories and promoting and amplifying them as one can as an ally, um, uh, but also you know having a, a kind of a, a great life um, in the arts um, and exploring in quite fundamental ways some of those sort of basic ideas about humanity and connection and community. Um, so. After I joined Bangara, really, um, I never kind of uh, really detoured much from that path of the arts. It's a convenient segue <clears throat> in to, to go and look at what we're talking about in relation to your book or what you're talking about in relation to your book. The title, Joe, is Burning Down the House, Reconstructing Modern Politics. I've been around long enough to know that words are chosen deliberately. Reconstruction implies something needs to be fixed. Let's start with what is broken. 
Look, I think that our political system generally is broken. Um, and I think that's a lot to do with the people that are populating it at the moment. Um, and that has continued then a trajectory of disillusionment that has been experienced by broad sections now of the wider population. Um, there has been for a long time, you know, people do talk about, uh, you know, they're both as bad as each other, a plague on both their houses. Now, I don't happen to believe that that's the case. I do think there is a qualitative difference at the moment between the type of leadership which is being offered by uh, Scott Morrison to Anthony Albanese, but I do find both of them wanting, but for different reasons. Um, I think that this idea that there are only two choices on offer um, and when one is incredibly bad, and that I believe is our current government, I do think that we are living under the worst government in living memory. And that starts at the top, um, the leadership or lack of leadership being offered by Scott Morrison, um, someone who really is in politics for power um, and everything that he does or says or imagines or offers is all about the retention of power um, and is not in any way visionary or ambitious for our country. Um, but if you've got poor leadership like that on offer from one side, uh, and then you've got on the side of the Labor Party such a timidity around expressing ambitious views because of the experience of 2019, but even before that, dating right back to, to Howard and the way that he would manipulate politics. And, and he was, you know, the first master of the dark arts of, of the wedge. Um, and you've got, so the Labor Party really responding to the government and so they're caught in this sort of dance of death in a way that just leaves the rest of us outside wondering what the hell is going on that at a time when the kind of challenges that we confront the problems the crises that are coming at us at a rate of knots um, have never been greater um, we just don't seem to have someone who is able to stand back look at the big picture describe the big picture and then imagine something different and talk to us as a population about what that might be and how we might get there um, so I think there is a sense that look, we've been stuck in this duopoly now for decades. Um, let's try something fundamentally different. Let's not be afraid of that. Um, and let's not also pretend that by trying something fundamentally different, whilst it will feel radical, that it necessarily is radical when we look around the world and we see all of the different models of government which are being successfully um, deployed in any number of countries, countries that are our close friends and allies. If we look at, <clears throat> I guess, if, if we look at the parliament as an institution and pick on something specific, then uh, there is a... Um, there's a strange little hour between two and three o'clock or thereabouts called question time that tends to get a lot of attention. Um, if we focus on that for, for a moment, because that is where the focus falls from the media and as a consequence, the community. Yes. Um, how do you reflect on what you see in that hour? Well, 
a lot of what goes on in that hour is pure theatre, really. Um, I don't think one should judge the institution of Parliament necessarily by the behaviour of uh, the parliamentarians within that hour, but you can certainly judge the parliamentarians. Um, and, you know, I think we've only got to reflect on what happened in the last couple of weeks of the parliamentary sitting calendar this year, and you can see the, the sort of the desperation of the ploys which are now being used by the government. Um, and it, it just seems that there is really no line that they will not cross in a bid to try and get dominance in that particular forum um, and through that forum to uh, influence and impact, if not dominate, um, the media reporting in the news cycle uh, and the evening news. Um, you know, the idea that we should be weaponising our national security for electoral gain, um, pontificating wildly with extreme rhetoric, uh, as Dutton was doing in the first instance, and then there seemed to be some kind of game of machismo going on between Dutton and Morrison, with Morrison knowing that Dutton's sort of sitting behind him, lurking, knife in hand, um, but to do so with so, in such a cavalier fashion, so carelessly playing games with really the most fundamental issues around our country, our safety, how we engage with the rest of the world, the relationships that we forge with people in our region, um, you know, not just the most powerful player in our region in China, but also a key economic partner in the past, to be just cavalier about that for electoral gain um, to try and, as I say, one, get some kind of play, some game of one-upmanship through question time, I find just jaw-dropping um, and dangerous. Uh, and yet that's what we see, these sort of extreme heightened levels of rhetoric, um, extreme uh, positions of aggression being adopted in this particular contest. You know, I, I don't have any problem with robust debate at all. Um, but I do have a problem where, where our, our, our parliamentary systems and our political engagement is being traduced in such a way for really venal and partisan outcomes. Um, and I'm not surprised that, you know, people look at question time and get turned off politics, but I think it's too important. Um, politics is too important. The impact that it has on all of us uh, it, to, it's just too much to allow that to happen in that way and that we need to transcend what we see and try and grapple with the real issues. You talk about reconstruction. So we've spoken a little bit about what's wrong and some of it, some of it is the you know, sort of the cold smoothies duopoly, um, uh, so-called parties of government. Um, and you mentioned a deep, I guess, a disaffection, cynicism that people have towards the political system. Um, how do we rebuild that to, to, to the, continue the theme? Well, I think we have to offer something different. Um, we have to, and then we have to embrace something different. I mean, if we really are frustrated um, and disillusioned, then we and we want things to be different, then we have to do something different. Um, we have to vote differently as well. Um, and I think, you know, if people have complained that we have too much of the same on offer this election, 
That is not the case. We have an array of people from very different backgrounds who have put their hand up. And there's, I think the only thing that will stop many of them being elected is some sort of reflexive resistance to the idea of difference, um, that somehow voting for an independent is a wasted vote, um, that somehow it's going to undermine efficient government. Um, and there's just no evidence to suggest that's the case at all. Um, not only have we had very efficient, a very efficient minority government in our living memory under the Gillard minority government, um, you know, there's just all sorts of evidence from the impact that, in, that individual independents have had within a system where they don't hold the balance of power, um, that, that they, can, they can make a change for the good, even if they are even if they do not su succeed in holding the balance of power. And look, we can point to the religious discrimination bill um, and what happened with that just in the last few weeks. I mean, the amendments that got up that ultimately led the government to have to shelve the bill were Rebecca McSharkey's amendments. I mean, there was collaboration between the members of the crossbench uh, and then uh, that is what really transformed the outcome of the passage of that particular bill through Parliament. Um, so independents really have shown that they can make an impact already. I believe if they hold the balance of power, that will be kind of completely transformative. But in order to get there, individual voters have to sit back and think, what, it would, what is it that would prevent me from voting for an, in, for an independent? And is that a reasonable position? Or is that just a reflexive position that I've adopted because I'm so used to um, living within the paradigm of a two-party system? I mean, we've seen that the media themselves have struggled to get their head around the idea that independents are genuinely independents and are attracting support as individuals. Um, when Simon Holmes of Court spoke at the National Press Club, the accusation is all around um, the fact that actually the independents are a secret political party and if it, you know, walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and the reality is independents are neither walking nor quacking like ducks they are not they are just not engaged in that kind of strategic um, alignment that would be required for a political the description of us as a political party to make any sense and yet people just the media um, and and some potential voters that we need to try and persuade and we need to get around the media in order to do that they can't get around the notion that you've got a group of people who are standing um, who have come from their communities and are standing in a bid to try and revive a grassroots and community engagement. They want to have a dialogue with their voters um, back in their electorates, and then they want to amplify that up to Canberra in a way that the ordinary views of Australian citizens can be heard and can be taken note of. And we actually find that, generally speaking, the views of Australian people are, are quite progressive, uh, are quite egalitarian, are very open and are way ahead of um, our parliaments and certainly this government in a whole range of key areas. Mm -hmm. That brings me rather conveniently to why you, why, why run? I mean, you've, you've, you've had a 12-month a period where we'll, which we'll touch on a little later, where there's been an intense media focus, intense focus of... Um, on issues that you probably never thought you'd be talking about publicly, and now you're running for parliament. Why? 
Well, I think that the key reason is that I think that this election is going to be the most consequential um, of our lifetime. Uh, this is the next parliament is the parliament that will need to grapple with a number of fundamental issues. First and foremost is obviously the climate crisis. Uh, and to have that reduced in the way that it has been over the last couple of decades to part of the culture wars is really extraordinary and quite frankly it's frightening and it hasn't happened elsewhere around the world you know the conservative government in britain for example does not uh, use climate change as a weapon um, to bash you know its opposition over the head it actually is engaging sensibly and meaningfully with these issues um, the fact that we've walked so far away from evidence-based policies in relation to you know, the climate crisis, when we can see that when we embrace science and, uh, and evidence-based policies around issues with the pandemic, um, that, and that is considered to be the gold standard, uh, and that is the one which has been promoted and celebrated, like it just doesn't make any sense to me um, the way that we are being so cavalier with our future, the, the actual future of the planet. Um, so if we have such we have such a consequential election um, and we have such a bad government and we have an opposition which is so terrified that it might be wedged, um, that it's really seeking to cleave as closely as possible to the government on really fundamental issues to avoid being a target for them as the election promotes. And I understand why that they're doing that, but it does mean that we're not having important policy discussions in a whole range of areas. Uh, now, if, if that's what's on offer, I think it is absolutely a quite natural, logical response for the Australian people to say, well, that's not good enough. But if you believe it's not good enough, then what are you going to do about it? And that's fundamentally, it's the, it's the answer to that question, I think, which has caused so many people to say, all right, well, this time I, I will step forward. It's like, we need to have some skin in the game here because the stakes are so high. Um, and so, you know, a couple of people had spoken to me about the possibility of running, as you say, it had never occurred to me having sort of walked through the fire <laughs> over the course of 2021, it wasn't something that I would ever have occurred to me to do. But when you think about it, you think about the stakes and you think about what you might be able to offer in a small way um, to impact the debate in some way, um, to raise issues, to open up discussion. I thought, well, you know, it's coming up to like next Saturday. Uh, tomorrow week is my final writer's week. Um, so I was stepping away from full-time employment um, at, in a, at a time which could neatly coincide with when the election was likely to be called. And I thought, well, in this instance, um, there is an opportunity to get involved. So you're not just complaining from the sidelines. Um, now, Boothby is a slightly different seat um, from many of the seats in which independents are standing. It's a marginal seat, one of the most marginal in the country, certainly the most marginal here in South Australia. Um, it's a seat that the Labor Party have been trying to win for many elections. Um, it's always the seat that they say that they're going to win in South Australia and then they never do it. Um, and back when I made the decision to jump into the fray, uh, you know, things were, it was a slightly different uh, tenor, uh, the, the political landscape, um, you know, 
it looked like it was going to be a very close election, very polarised electorate. It could come down to individual seats, you know, arm wrestle seat by seat as to what would be the pathway to victory. Um, and in that instance, wresting Boothby from the government was a really critical part of ensuring that they don't get another term. And it seemed to me that having um, a, an independent in this particular um, campaign, in this particular contest, could assist uh, in getting rid of uh, the government. Um, now, obviously, we're in it to win it. We're fighting very hard. Um, but there are different ways that you can measure success when your uh, overriding objective is actually to have a more humane, um, evidence-based government, um, which hopefully, whatever happens in Boothby, will be being held to account by a very strong, independent, and probably overwhelmingly female, centrist, progressive uh, crossbench. So really the short answer, that was the long answer, the short answer as to why I got involved was because uh, I, th I thought I could make an impact and I thought it was, it's important and incumbent upon all of us to do what we can this time. One of the interesting conversations I've had with people in the lead up to doing interviews with, with people running for election um, is they see the major parties as having positions on a range of areas. Whether they agree with them or not is immaterial. The, the, the portfolio reach with those parties is, is great. Um, the community is, has learned to, to expect that for the most part, independence will focus on things like climate, things like integrity, and also gender equality. Uh, what are the Joe Dyer specials in terms of policy areas that you want to look at outside of those three um, the three issues that I, that I, in a previous podcast, I called the holy trinity of, uh, of campaign topics for, for some of the independents around the place. What will make you, what sets you aside from the, 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 those three that are being pursued as sort of tentpole topics? Well, what I will say first and just quickly, particularly on the issue of integrity, is that um, for me that is a sort of a fundamental foundational um, plank because I think it is the lack of integrity and the lack of accountability that has allowed a corruption of our policy development process. Um, and it means that policy development is not happening um, from an evidence-based um, position. It is being corrupted by the influence of, you know, rent seekers, um, of people who actually who have a commercial um, and a partisan interest in the outcome of the policy development process. And so we're seeing, and I think if we if, if we remove that, um, then policy generally would be developed, assessed, um, discussed, debated in a much more useful and meaningful and pure kind of way. So all policy, I think, needs to come from, you know, that, that very rational position. Um, and that isn't happening at the moment because there's just so much dark money flowing through um, and 
this government in particular has allowed people like, you know, people with very real and commercial and corporate interests inside the policy development tent. Um, and it's just that has been to everybody's great cost. Um, but look, I, in terms of other areas that I would like to get involved in, you know, I have always had an interest and in then being in the campaign uh, over the last well, couple of months, really, in the discussions that we've been starting to have with a whole range of people, it's been dismaying to me the way that we have allowed our services um, to be privatised. Um, so the delivery of really fundamental services to the Australian okay. population to have been privatised. And you look at the way that's happened in some areas of the health system, um, in the aged care system, in the way that uh, and the social security system and NDIS in particular, um, the providers around there are now private providers. Um, and there's lots of difficulties and challenges that flow from that, um, which I think have been to the detriment of the services that are on offer. It's both to do with uh, the actual offering and then it's to do with the system through which people looking for help have to navigate um, and the, the bureaucratic kind of labyrinths through which um, the kind of Kafka-esque system with which they're trying to grapple and often at times when they're in real need. Now, it's very difficult to unscramble the egg when it comes to privatisation, but I do think that we need to have a whole scale look at our service delivery and, and how that's being done. And then we need to look at the amount of funding which is in the system in order that uh, those people, those Australians who are at their most vulnerable and at most need of help um, are getting that help and are not instead being um, subjected to kind of cruel and draconian systems which are compounding the difficulties that they're facing. So, you know, I come to this campaign with a real strong interest uh, and ambition for equity um, and the way that we can look to help Australians at every stage of their lives and whether or not that's ensuring that there is good childcare available so that they're accessing early childhood um, education uh, and getting a good foundation for life, whether it's ensuring that our schools are equitably funded and that we're not providing, you know, rivers of cash into some of the most wealthy private school institutions in the country at the expense of some of our disadvantaged areas, whether about whether it's ensuring that our universities are well funded, um, that there is good um, careers, healthy, strong careers for academics who've worked so hard to get there, and that our research capabilities within universities is bolstered, and not just in areas that might go on potentially to be seen as you know commercial streams, but that it's actually about creating great minds and critical thinking uh, amongst the student population so that we can go on to have a creative and innovative population and workforce more generally. Um, then it's, of course, if we find ourselves unemployed, that we're not being subject to kind of punitive mutual obligations that serve, yeah. 
you know, really no good benefit at all other than to try and ensure that people don't get too comfortable um, on living in poverty uh, on the pittance that we offer through JobSeeker. Um, and then, of course, once we get into, well, the health system as well, why isn't dental part of Medicare? Um, let's look at the way that we um, provide mental health services, um, particularly at this time when there is so much um, you know, sort of debilitating anxiety that's endemic within our young people. Um, and then we've seen the crisis in aged care, a crisis that existed way before COVID, but has basically almost led the entire system to collapse. Uh, so at every point of our lives, government is there. It is intervening in different ways. Um, but my argument would be that it is not intervening um, effectively and it is not in intervening equitably. And in some cases, it's not providing enough um, funding in order for um, services to be delivered um, in, the, in the way that we, we would like to think they would be delivered when we're the ones um, holding out our hand for help. Now, there is an interesting thing in that in that fairly lengthy response. Sorry. I <laughs> no, 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 no. That's fine. That's why we're here. But there's an interesting thing I noticed. Um, I gather there are a few problems in the art sector that might need fixing. Well, look, the art sector has just been entirely debilitated, um, just, you know, destroyed, undermined by this government's sort of lack of care for artists. Um, you know, it, we've just been through the ringer over the last two years. And even now, as we prepare for, uh, you know, our big festival coming up here in Adelaide and in Writers Week, um, the limitations and restrictions through which we're trying to navigate and under which we're working um, because of the ongoing presence of COVID within the community, like the, you know, the, the level of difficulty is just incredible. Um, you know, we were so delighted last year in 2021 because Adelaide Writers Week was kind of the first Writers Week to come back after the pandemic and that wave of cancellations that had happened and the fact that all artists were sort of sitting at home often um, with no income whatsoever. Uh, they weren't able to access um, JobKeeper. There wasn't any kind of recognition of the, the way that employment is structured within the arts community to try and help yeah try and help again it's there's no sense of of actually trying to be creative and in the way that we offer our support and our services so that people get the help that is you know that they need um it's all very arbitrary um but you know we thought back then that we were through the worst of it and then all of 21 there was just a another devastating wave of cancellations and uncertainty the impact of hard borders on tours all of these sorts of things um and there was extra support that was made available through RISE funding um, and obviously a lot of companies were able, the companies themselves in the cultural sector were able to access JobKeeper. But what was really disappointing and what the, the kind of common story that was heard by so many of us working within this sector was that that money wasn't actually trickling down to artists. It was bolstering sort of the administrative um, and producing 
organizations and institutions so that they could come through. And, you know, for a lot of arts companies, they can actually, it they're in a better financial position if they don't make art. So if theatre companies didn't have to make theatre and, and have audiences come in, they could be in a better financial position. But the people who weren't in the better financial position were the artists that were no longer being employed. Um, so... You know, it it was it's been a terrible time for the art sector, and we're not quite through it yet either. Um, even you know, as late as sort of January and February, we saw festivals being cancelled because um, they weren't allowed to have the the numbers that were necessary to make uh, events financially viable. How could we be? And I accept that this is probably a question without notice. Um, if you had a blank sheet of paper. What would you, what kind of things would you like to see governments at a state and federal level do in the art space in order to, you know, rev the engine up a bit more and give people um, uh, the incentive to get back into creative work? Well, look, it does, in the art sector, it comes down to money. Um, and I know that doesn't sound like a very interesting response, but the fact is, is that um, money has... It's a realistic been... response. It doesn't need to be interesting. Yeah, but, but the fact is as well is that money has been stripped away out of the art sector um, over many years. Uh, and, you know, at the moment, and it, it, this is particularly so, I would say, at a federal level, uh, and this is over both, you know, shades of government. Um, uh, I mean, things weren't particularly all right with you know, George Brandis's raids into the Australia Council and the Australia Council's never got back all the money that was stripped away when um, Brandis decided that he wanted to be sort of Medici style, the direct patron of particular arts organisations and uh, he had his own firm ideas and most of those were to do with more traditional art forms. Um, but it is the individual artists and it is the small to medium sector that has suffered and that is actually the engine room of a lot of the creativity that then flows through up and around in our sector. Um, and so many of the major companies rely on the sort of fermentation and um, this sort of hubbub of creativity that, that is driven by individuals and small organisations and collectives. And we should be supporting them. We should be ensuring that money goes directly to these people. Um, you know, I'm actually very interested in the idea of a um, universal basic income more broadly, but particularly, I mean, Ireland is actually just piloting this as we speak for individual artists that they are provided with a fairly low level of um, income but income that is not part of the social security system it is saying we are paying you for the work that you are doing because the work that artists are doing we all rely on all the time we've only got to look at how we all got through the pandemic over the last couple of years it was joining collectively uh, and watching, you know, high-impact television shows, um, Ted Lasso, Squid Game, all of these sorts of different things that became part of our discourse as we all sat at home and watched them individually but then joined broader national conversations that were kind of keeping us sane. But we were reading books, we were watching live streaming, we were listening to music at home. These are the things that kind of not just nourish the soul but that stimulate the imagination. And, and a country without strong imagination, thinking and really fundamental ways about what it means to be 
human as individuals, but what it means to be part of a community, what it means to be part of a country, what our national identity is, what we want it to be. Um, these are the things that our artists are fundamentally first and foremost informing us about or provoking us about or questioning us about. Um, and it is from that platform then that, you know, further investigations and policy developments and so on can occur. Um, but kind of lateral, creative, innovative, imaginative thinking that has to be the bedrock I think of our country and that is what the our artists are offering us up and they do so often at great personal cost you know most artists are not drawing six-figure incomes um, and having successful TV careers. They're beavering away uh, in their homes, writing, thinking, um, recording, uh, <clears throat> creating, um, rehearsing, doing all of these things um, out of their own natural curiosity, um, but then offering them back up to us. Uh, and I think we need to recognise the service and sacrifice that they're making and that we need to ensure that they can at least earn a living wage while they try and do so. So you'd be in favour of some kind of universal basic income for people in the arts to be able to um, almost, if I can use this phrase, uh, almost like a kind of a startup type thing, because if something takes off and then their income becomes, you know, more reliable over time, the UBI, Universal Basic Income, can drop off. So it's almost like a, an investment by the community through the government in the development of, you know, the arts that it could possibly, if I can entertain this possibility, um, uh, remove if the artist actually starts to make income from the idea on an ongoing basis. Well, yeah, I mean, look, years ago, before we had all of these draconian measures about mutual obligation, I mean, to an extent, the unemployment um, benefits used to offer, used to act as that in a way. You had people who were drawing the dole, um, but who were not bludging, but who were being really active and creative whilst they were doing so. Um, and I think that that is, you know, insecurity and anxiety um, is the enemy of creativity. And if you are really worried about how you're going to afford to pay your rent um, or to, you know, pay your electricity bill or get your kids some new shoes when they need them, then you are not going to be being your, your most creative. And I've seen that happen with my own friends, really fantastic artists who get so sort of worn down by poverty um, that they ultimately leave the industry. Um, so if we can put in place measures that mean that people can have some rest but um, from having to worry about that, um, then they're going to be able to, you know, do their best creative work. And we're not really talking about a huge amount of money. Um, and, you know, this and this can apply more broadly as well. I mean, obviously, artists and, and what they offer are a particular concern of mine. But the way that we consign vast swathes of our population to live in really desperate circumstances through this, you know, 
manifestly inadequate level of job seeker, for example, you know, I don't understand why that's acceptable. And in fact, broadly, again, this is another one of those areas where the government and our parliament is way behind um, the views of the broader Australian population. I mean, you actually have a broader coalition um, of organisations of businesses and unions and, and individuals and community organisations, not-for-profits, all at one, they have a consensus that job seeker is, is far too low. Now, they're coming at it for very different reasons. Um, a lot of business communities yeah. thinking, well, as we saw happen during the pandemic when the coronavirus supplement was um, was given, uh, you know, overnight it was apparently possible to lift people um, on unemployment benefits out of poverty and when they were given extra money, they didn't spend it in a, you know, reckless fashion. They didn't, you know, buy more alcohol or put it in the pokies. You know, the Accenture studies that Andrew Charlton talked about in his National Press Club address showed that people spent it very wisely and they were able to pay their bills and they were able to pay down some of their debt and they were able to ensure that their kids were being fed and were ready and prepared for school with all of the books and all of the uniform items and everything that they needed without that being the a source of of great anxiety and I just don't understand why um, if we could do it then and we could watch the real-time experiment in the way that played out that there was no disincentive for people to um, keep looking for work um, it just meant that they could live with some dignity for some time um, but you know for the powers that be decided that should be temporary and that a rich country like us should consign a section of our um, population into poverty um, and I guess that sort of fundamentally, and this is, you know, the art of politics is, is about compromise. Uh, I accept all of that, but it's also, it's about choice. And the choices that we make um, as a rich, developed country, uh, I find quite confounding. We could afford to look after our community um, and we choose not to, and we choose to redirect our money in different ways uh, and to do things like subsidise the fossil fuel industry. Um, and that to me is, is not just criminally cruel, it's criminally stupid. Um, we've spoken about arts, we've spoken about storytelling, and we've spoken about the impact of of stories on culture throughout the conversation. But over the past year and a half, you've been in the middle of uh, telling a particularly confronting story in the public domain, which started, and please correct me if I'm wrong, which started with the first Four Corners Canberra Bubble special, right? That's right. Uh, whenever you deal with something that personal, it, it can be, uh, like the, the, the tearing off a scab and um, and bleeding, right? Yeah. Um, what was that year like for you over 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 the, the the period that you had that degree of public attention? Well, it was a very strange year, um, and look, and a very challenging one. Um, I think the thing about it though that I'll say is sort of there were two things I guess which were ameliorating um, apart from you know the fact that there were there were lots of people around me who were very supportive both people you know my, my friends and family obviously but people that I had not met before um, you know Mark Lawyers for example um, 
and then different people who had been on some sort of similar journeys, uh, not in terms of their own personal stories. So there was a network of support that could kind of, that and did develop, um, mm-hmm. that was very important when things became uh, very stressful. Um, but uh, I think the thing about it was, is that, you know, it, it happened quite quickly in a way, like Louise Milligan had been investigating the Canberra bubble story and she had heard of Kate's story but did not know uh, who Kate was and had no means of of finding out who she was um, initially. And so as a good investigative journalist did, she kept plugging away. And then it, the, the confluence of timing was really very tragic because she finally had identified Kate and got on to <clears throat> Kate's lawyer, Michael Bradley, um, really just on the day actually that Kate died. Um, so there was a it was a very emotionally febrile time um, when Louise got in touch. So the four corners um, impact uh, and intervention in the story, if you like, happened very soon after Kate's death. Um, and so it was at a very heightened time. Um, and this is not a, a criticism at all. I mean, I made a decision that I was going to talk to Louise, um, but it was a decision within that kind of context and it felt very natural. And then once that decision was made, there were a lot of things that just flowed quite naturally um, from it. So it wasn't so much uh, really making it wasn't so much as making a very firm decision to tell Kate's story and to uh, become Kate's spokesperson, if you like, but because of the timing of it all and the sort of the natural flow of things, it felt like it would be more, you'd have to make a decision not to do that, Um, that you would have to kind of consciously step away from uh, Kate's story and Kate's intentions and objectives and say, actually, that's not something that I can think that I think I want to get involved in or, or can do. Um, whereas actually there was a, a sort of a natural momentum and an, a, a tide in the way that the tale was flowing um, that was very easy uh, and natural, as I say, to, to stay in and to, to go with that particular flow. So um, it, was, it was more about, um, you know, maintaining the connection with Kate, we all knew very strongly and passionately what Kate had wanted. And so it was about just keeping faith with that. Um, And look, the other thing about it uh, is that, of course, it was a very strange time generally over the course of um, 2021. Um, So whilst this story was playing out very dramatically and, you know, was one of the major political stories of the year, this sort of and scandal and crisis, whatever you want to call it. A lot of the time, um, it was happening whilst we were all sitting in our individual homes, um, and so it, it it was there was a level of abstraction in a way about it, and the way that we were engaging with it as individuals. Um, that it wasn't that it didn't feel real; it felt very, very real. Um, but it was it was still quite a personal thing and a, and a personal experience. And it was really only when the lawsuit um, 
against Sue Chrysanthu, which initially, you know, Christian Porter had not, you know, we weren't, we weren't taking action against him. Um, but it was only when that played out kind of very publicly and that was in person in the courts that it really, uh, that the level of sort of stress and, and the attention um, ratcheted up um, a few more levels and it became something that was, you know, very difficult to, to keep on top of um, and keep sane over, really. I've been talking to Joe Dyer, a candidate for Boothby in South Australia, who was published, got a book published called Burning Down the House, Reconstructing Modern Politics. It's out now on Monash University Publishing. And Joe, before I let you go, what's your website? Uh, so I have a website, dyerforboothby.com, where you can read uh, a lot more about policies across a whole range of different areas. Um, including refugee policy, which we didn't touch on, but that's also an area of great interest of mine. Um, so you can go there and, you know, check out what it is that we're trying to do, get involved in different ways, donate some money, uh, all of these things that will help us try and transform politics after the next election. Joe, thank you so much for joining me on this particular podcast. Don't be a stranger. It'd be good to talk to you again. Oh, I'd love that. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure.